And it is Crosstown Conversations. And, um, oh, I have a, a show tonight that's very close to my heart because um, we are um, celebrating the life of Lolis Eli, uh, somebody who has been a very important part of the history of our city, an important part of my own history in this city since the day I arrived in 1972, and um, and certainly for his son, Lois Eric Eli, um, who's going to be joining us on the show. First up, followed by another person important to me and to the city, former Mayor Moon Landrew, who um, first looked for support from um, Lois Eli when he first ran for mayor, and ultimately through life became a very close and intimate friend of his. And um, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to hear what, what, what Moon has to say about um, his um, early days in, in office and, and his relationship with um, Lois. Um, so I um, am celebrating his life as we did on Sunday in a funeral that was a very beautiful event. Uh, with a lot of folks um, celebrating and speaking on his behalf, I kind of did a count, and it seemed like there were there were just about 500 people in that church. Uh, it was pretty much standing room only, and um, of course, a beautiful second line afterwards. And uh, Lois, Eric Eli, son of, um, keeps the spirit going, and in his own style and way, um, I suspect a little bit less. Combative was the word that um, <laughs> Mayor Landrieu used, um, and I, I mean you're combative in your own way, Lolis, but in, in a much more sotto voce, you know, kind of calm or quiet or uh, way. So I'm 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 curious about how that developed. But um, share with me first of all your perspective on what your dad's life was all about as you learned of it. And as you knew of it and experienced it, well, first of all, thank you for allowing me this opportunity to talk about my father. He was a great influence on me, and I think many of the things that were most important to him are values that could help guide our city forward in a positive way. His his greatest concern was with the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, and in New Orleans, that tends to be black people, but that wasn't his only concern. But his primary concern was in policies and possibilities that would make it so that someone in the, in the, the same social economic class that he came from would have the kind of opportunities he did. So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. One of his pet peeves was the fact that the fence, a fence around Armstrong Park. And he would always say that that is a fence designed to ensure that potential Louis Armstrongs cannot go into that park named after this great man. Right. Is that kind of hypocrisy that always bothered him. And, you know, Lois, I was, um, you know, I, I learned a lot during the ceremony and, and since then 
uh, speaking with uh, Moon, for one, and um, others that were there at the funeral. Uh, but I also uh, think about the book that uh, Sybil Morial um, wrote and, and, and learning from it facts that I didn't know about the city before I came here because I came after integration, so to speak, integration. And um, I, I was shocked to read that black people could not go to City Park. That just stunned me. And, you know, going, not being able to go to restaurants and hotels and, and stores, of course, I'd always heard about that. But somehow City Park, which is one of my haunts, one of the places that I treasure the most in the whole city of New Orleans, to think that black people would be excluded from a park that was meant to be for all citizens just was astounding. So, And, yeah, when they put that fence up around Armstrong Park, it was out, without me knowing about the history of City, City Park and being shocked that that fence was being put up and, and for that purpose. And, of course, if you recall, one of the reasons it was put up is that uh, at, for um, uh, when it was first um, designed, um, they had this kind of notion of uh, some European parks and um, the municipal auditorium was intended to be used by the gambling uh, for, as a gambling casino for a while, remember? Yeah, well, I don't remember it from personal experience, but I think we need to go back further than that because in order to clear the land for that park, they had oh, right, to destroy right, right, of dozens and dozens and dozens of historical structures. Homes, people's homes. Exactly. Just as they did, again, after Katrina, when they destroyed people's homes with all their belongings in it. That was another shocking experience for me to watch uh, Luisa Dantos's um, footage of and know that people were barely given any time to get things out of their homes and might not have had the ability to get back in town to get their stuff. And and the contractors would basically told, whatever you want, take. I mean, <laughs> did you know that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, and... And a city that relies so heavily on its history and its architectural history, it's unconscionable to do that. So you get both the racism involved and the kind of, of, of uh, ignorance of our architectural legacy and the importance mm -hmm. of that. So that mm -hmm. remains sort of consistent in the city's history. How did you hear, uh, what, what did your father tell you about his early years in the civil rights movement and why he became so active in it and how did he describe his role to you and how do you understand his role from not just him but from the rest of history? Well, there's an interesting dichotomy that I uh, sometimes try to figure out. What my father will say is that he was working on Drive Street, and Rudy Lombard came to him and said, we're about to start doing these sit-in demonstrations, and we need a lawyer to represent us. And mind you, Drive Street was, in a sense, Main Street for black New Orleans. It's now Rector Castle Haley, named after a great civil rights leader in our own right. But my father said that he was reluctant. He told Rudy Lombard, well, I will find you a lawyer because I can't do it. Either he was too inexperienced or he was more concerned about trying to figure out how to earn a living and support his, uh, his then barely born daughter. What's inconsistent to me about that story is that he founded a chapter of the NAACP at Dillard University, 
which means that he already had civil rights on his mind prior to that. So whatever reluctance he had to, to jump into the sit-ins full force probably had less to do with a, a disinterest in civil rights or in public agitation and more concerned about whether or not as a young lawyer he'd be the best person to do that. But, uh, and, and you can uh, – go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, of course, once he uh, got involved, he never looked back. And he remained concerned with the fundamental values of the civil rights movement, with a kind of democracy that uh, included not merely the vote, but of kind of economic democracy that I think often the civil rights movement or some leaders within the civil rights movement all but abandoned as they became more successful. Yeah, let's talk about that because actually that's something that Amun talked with me about in the interview that's going to run uh, right after um, uh, our talk. Uh, he, he talked about that dichotomy. I, I don't think we, he talked about it in my recording. He talked about it beforehand about mm -hmm. those who stayed stuck with the cause, such as your dad, and mm -hmm. those who basically saw this as kind of my turn politics and mm -hmm. came into it more with a view towards, um, you know, personal benefits. So yeah. Um, yeah, So why was your father well, – how do you explain why your father stuck with and, – and, and actually he talks about how Lola – he offered Lola's a job. And Lola said, mm -hmm. no, I don't want a job because I need to be able to stay out here and be a voice and be able to speak mm -hmm. and be independent. And um, that was a distinguishing factor for um, Moon about your dad. Um, so, 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 what? What's your explanation for why he was so dedicated to the principles and the, and the struggle as opposed to the opportunities? Well, he had previously been given an opportunity to actually be within the system, if you will. This is a young lawyer. He worked briefly as an assistant district attorney. And as he described it, his main responsibility in that job was evicting black people from their homes. Mm. And if you see the way in which the system works against black people or poor black people, in that context, you begin to wonder to what extent it is possible within the context of the system to do anything differently. And I don't wish to say that it is impossible to work within the system and do something constructive, but he saw some of the problems uh, that it, that did come about, and also the people whom he had the greatest respect for, people like Richard Haley and Aretha Castle Haley, these were people who did not seek public office. And often when he spoke with the people who did seek public office, who did achieve public office, he spoke with disdain about the kind of compromises they made or the kind of hypocrisy involved in saying to black people, look what I'm doing for you, when my father knew that they were doing everything they could behind the backs of these people to, uh, to minimize black gains. He talks about Israel Augustine on the bench doing everything he could to convict the Black Panthers. Really? And, oh, that's something oh. I didn't know. Oh, another piece of history. Mm. Mm. So um, in many ways, he saw nothing to respect about these people who made those sorts of compromises. And the other thing is that once you had been involved in civil rights at any level, it became assumed that you subscribed to some principles. And he didn't like this idea that you could be sort of branded a civil rights leader, even in the absence 
of of uh, of ongoing adherence to the appropriate principles. And in, in, in terms of current the sincerity of the individuals going forward, what did he? What has he said in the in these late years? about where we are today. There was an article, I think it was in the Times-Picayune, actually, talking about the fact that the schools are as segregated as they ever were. And um, because, you know, white people take their kids out of public school and put them in private schools for one, and, um, the, and the system was allowed to deteriorate so much because, you know, white people didn't care what kind of education black people were getting. So, I mean, I, I say that, with an arm's length real understanding of the school system because education is one thing that's always sort of eluded me as a system that I truly have any kind of real grasp on how it works and doesn't work. So um, what, what, what did you hear from him in, these last, in this last decade about where we are today? Well, there was a quote that he always uh, uh, said. He said, black leadership cannot account for its stewardship that these black leaders cannot actually talk about what they have accomplished in a real sense for average black citizens. And he wasn't speaking specifically of the school system in that regard. But mind you, he was also aware of the extent to which um, the school system was a profit center. And so uh, one of the things that the school system exists to do is ensure that contractors can earn money from, uh, from supplying the system. And in that sense, the actual, um, the actual education of children is but one thing that the school system was seeking to do. And he was critical of its failures to, um, to, to actually educate children. And how about the prison and system and the, the uh, incarceration? Now, again, there was a recent article, and this time I think it was in the, today's New York Times maybe or in the last couple of days, and it was a story mm -hmm. about um, – sort of unintended consequences. So um, uh, the unintended consequences of actually, again, black people in office favoring policies regarding drug use and other, I don't know what to call them, you know, potentially interpreted as misdemeanors, but reinterpreted in recent years as, as criminal offenses that we're landing people with long jail sentences and, and just literally decimating um, black families. Well, i tell you something that kind of puts that in perspective. I was talking to Judge Arthur Hunter, and this goes back more than a decade when I was still working at the Times Picayune. And Arthur Hunter and uh, then Judge Charles Elwa were going to rename their courtrooms. And as I recall, Arthur Hunter had already renamed his and Charles Elwell was supposed to rename his in honor of Collins, Douglas, and Eli, the law firm that my father and Bob Collins and Nils Douglas founded and did civil rights work with during the 60s. And my father did not want that honor. He did not want his name associated with an institution that existed to put black people in jail. And it's one of those kinds of principled positions that he was inclined to take because had his name been on the courtroom, he would not have been implicated in the conviction of people rightly or wrongly. But he felt even the existence of that building in the form in which it exists 
was not something he wished to be associated with. Mm-hmm. So, so it, the, the the pictures emerging here of a man that's just so powerfully principled, and um, I think of you that way also, uh, in a, in a different context. And you know what I, as you may have seen in my newsletter that I put out today. Um, I, that I, I characterized the shows that I knew you wrote for uh, uh, for um, Treme for HBO as easily identified by their authenticity, mm-hmm. and clearly that's something that you worked at. That wasn't accidental. That wasn't just because you happened to have lived in Treme for I don't know how long, but many years, and and um, and also been a principled person. That that that, that it was deliberate. You had to have worked at that. So where does that come from? Where does where does that well, level of commitment come from? Um, I have to say that my mother, Cherry Eli. It has a parallel level of commitment. She was the first and last black principal of Lusher School, and as someone who always valued education and whose mother, my grandmother, always saw that as the road forward, the idea that that should be primary in terms of trying to move black people or poor people forward is very much a part of where, what I got growing up. But what I'd also like to say, I don't want to suggest you know, that my father was any kind of saint at all, but what I would like to suggest is that he had one consistent question um, that generally was either not addressed or was not addressed to satisfaction, which is what is this going to do for the average New Orleanian? And the average New Orleanian, certainly then and to a lesser extent after the flood of 2005, but still the average New Orleanian is poor and black. And any policies that do not put the poor and the black first seemed to me to be, and I would say seemed to him to be to the detriment of New Orleans. Another thing that he found problematic was the extent to which political leadership exploits the culture of the city, while at the same time treating the people who create the culture, the cooks, the musicians, the second-line organizations, the Mardi Gras Indians, those people were treated with a kind of contempt and disdain that he would find horrendous. So now you're singing my song because uh, anybody who listens to my show knows how strongly I feel about the fact that the tourism industry attracts people to the city based on the culture of the city and yet really does not support it and invest in it the way that would enable us to um, truly advance the careers and the opportunities for our um, creatives, our, our makers in the city. So... Uh, yeah, this is something I feel really strongly about. Speaking of which, so um, you know, one of the pro- one of the results of that is is people having to leave New Orleans and work in other places. And this has been going on for the whole past century. Here we are, a city that you know, as I say always, is 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 one of the uh, one of the reasons why culture in the 20th century is what it is. It, it changed and evolved as a result of the creativity and the originality of this marketplace, this this city, this 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 culture, this legacy that we keep alive more so than most cities do, um, people had to go. They went to Chicago. They went to New York. They're still going. And, and here you are in Los Angeles. Lois, Eric Eli, what are you doing there? Well, in some ways it's different because um, I'm pursuing the television career that I started working on, Treme. And the capital of television is certainly Los Angeles. David Simon and Eric Overmeyer pulled off a minor miracle by being able to produce a film, a TV show in New Orleans. And 
I'd say is that it's not so problematic that our artists choose to leave. It's problematic that in many instances they see themselves having no choice. The other thing that we forget about is the extent to which the economics of the city are integrally tied with its cultural practices. It takes a lot of money to mask Indian. It takes a lot of money to to second to be a member of a social aid and pleasure club. It's not so bad if you got a decent job and can make the decision to save a portion of your income to make your suit. But when you're making less and less money, it becomes increasingly difficult to to, uh, to pursue these cultures, these cultural practices. You know, I often um, have to talk to people about why we do or don't invest in our culture here. And more often than not, I complain about Mardi Gras which, of course, is a wonderful cultural celebration, but it also um, so, um, soaks up a lot of um, uh, financial resources. But I was usually thinking about the uptown folks who um, cannot be philanthropic because of the money that they invest in Mardi Gras. Honestly, I hadn't thought as much about um, the resources that it takes people to be in second line organizations and um, to to uh, to mask but yeah of course I'm seeing that as we speak uh, but that's uh, another part of the revelations that I've been experiencing in the past week um, since your dad's funeral and um, tell me um, if for just a, I want to come back to what you're doing in Los Angeles because I do want to sort of help everybody catch up with Lola Sarigili too as as we celebrate your dad but um, for just a minute who are some of the other people that your father worked with who share this commitment to principles that um, you know have, have uh, uh, stayed in touch with those those commitments so you know one of the people that I often um, uh, I'm afraid to. I'm such a name freak that I'm going to uh, drop his name for a minute. So I'm not. I'm not going to try to call anybody in particular. But I want to hear from you on on um, the folks that you think are, are still out there um, looking at this as as something that they consider um, a, a, a deep commitment to the people of the city. Um, that can be difficult. That when you talk about people that my father worked with. Uh, a lot of those people are dead. I think that's a big part of why my father um, sort of started fading. It's like all of his old friends, people like Tom Dent, Richard and Retha Castle Haley. Um, these people, as they as they died, um, he felt that he, you know, young friends are not quite the same as old friends. His, his partner, Neil Douglas, died several years ago, and that was a blow to him as well. Jack Nelson, whom he truly loved and worked a great deal with during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, Jack passed away as well, Rudy Lombard. Um, and the uh, Ernest Jones was his law partner until he retired. And he and Ernest became friends working on the Black Panther trial back in 1971. And so that Ernest remains a great example of a good friend of his who shares his principles. Um, but um, I'm not certain... I mean, there's certainly other people I could call, other people whose work he admires. Calvin Johnson, he always loved as a judge sitting on the bench and attempting to do something principled with the position that he occupied. Uh, he was not as thrilled with most elected officials, except he and I would always argue about Obama. He was truly proud of Obama and what Obama had accomplished. 
I had my reservations about uh, the things that some of the priorities Obama set. But um, I remember it was interesting because not long before Obama's reelection, he and I were in um, in Sonoma, California, attending a wedding of Jennifer Lai, a, a intern who had worked with my father, and they'd become close. And so we're in this elevator. My father's wearing an Obama hat. And this guy, a very large white man, uh, says, uh, how's that change working out for you? Mm-hmm. And my father at that point was in his 80s and certainly not uh, in a position to be physically, to physically confront this guy, was attempting to, uh, to defend his president and having difficulty getting the words out because he didn't prepare to have a fight on the elevator. And this guy ends up getting off of the next floor. And it was... It was striking to me that someone would bother being that mean. And so when Obama was reelected, I thought back on that guy and was sort of happy that um, at least my father got his final word in, in that way, if not exactly in terms of uh, being able to, to beat him mm-hmm. in that impromptu fisticuffs verbally. You know, I, I want to call out just a, um, a, a, a part of what you talked about at the funeral um, and uh, – um, I just uh, this, this theoretically could be the ending point of our interview, but I still want to sneak in, you know, just a little bit about what you're up to now. But um, you talked about how your your dad. Um, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I'm going to have to let you do it because I can't do this. Talk about where he came from in the city, the neighborhood <laughs> he came from. I, I just can't do it. It's like Seth. Yeah. Uh, Seth does those things, you know, jokes that uh, he can't tell. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've right. ever seen that segment, well, but um, and then I just want to tell you a story about how the whole uh, evolution of that that um, what, what do they call words that are nicer replacements for other words? What's Euphemism. Euphemism. How that euphemism came about, because this is going to surprise you. But go ahead and you talk about, okay. first of all, how you opened and closed your remarks. Right. Well, my father made a point of telling anybody who asked that he was from Niggertown, the area of the city near where Broadway and St. Charles meet. If you had Broadway and St. Charles and walked toward the river, you get some sense of that community. And he did that in part for the shock value, but also because... It was a way of aligning himself with the people who were at the bottom. And it was a reminder that despite the fact that he had made some economic and academic gains, he still saw himself as being a part of that community and measured himself by his, his, uh, his retained connection to that community, which is not to say that he ever thought about going back there and live again. In many ways, Niggertown was less a place to him than a a uh, a, a and uh, how would I put it a um, sort of an ideal um, or a symbol of where black people have come from and where most of us still reside. So um, this is going to uh, maybe be a surprise to you and maybe not, but um, you know Tannen Bob Tannen was the one who was um, running a, a neighborhood study the purpose of which was to designate historic districts throughout the city for um, under Moon Landrew. And um, uh, he had hired a woman named Pat Watts, who was a good friend of your dad's, mm-hmm. um, to work on that study at your dad's suggestion, by the way. And um, 
when it came to that neighborhood, Pat is the one who suggested the name Black Pearl. Uh, okay. <laughs> I did not realize See, I like that. to share a little history along the way, too. And, and so Pat... Um, you know, it, it stuck, uh, and, and it was something that everybody wanted because they couldn't put the original mm-hmm. name in the document describing all the <laughs> neighborhoods. But that's where Plaque Pearl came from, Lolis. Lolis, what, what are you doing now? Because I've, I've got to make sure I have enough time for the mayor, and I also have Jenga <laughs> Mwendo. I don't know if you know Jenga, but she's a terrific yeah, gal. And she's coming on after Moon, so I've got to leave time for her. Go ahead. Understood. Well, I am working on a show called Greenleaf. It's about a called mega what? church. It's set in Memphis, and it's on Oprah Winfrey Network. And, in fact, it will be on tonight. This is the fifth episode of the second season. So I've been working on this show since December. And, oh, uh, all right. We get to raise an interesting question about the church, the black church, and its role in the community and its role in, uh, in social issues. So that's that's been a, a good thing to be involved in. I'm enjoying it. Fantastic. Tell me when it runs. Uh, it is going to be on tonight on the Oprah Winfrey Network, I believe, at 9 o'clock. I'm not certain of the local time offhand. That's, lo- uh, that's 9 o'clock um, Pacific? Uh, no, no, Central. Central, central 9 o'clock Central. All right. right. Well, that's fantastic. I look forward to uh, catching up on that and, and listening to you because, as I said, uh, when I listen to your segments of, of the um, – of the uh, Treme series, I, I always knew when it was you because it, it was just so much more true. I think that what I feel about all the things that I've written, that you've written, um, I always feel like they are really reaching for the truth and not, uh, you know, weaving a tale and, and coming up with spin, but getting to the truth. And, uh, and I hope you keep on doing that, and I look forward to the books you're going to write, um, Lois, because I know they're in your mind, right? Indeed they are. In fact, I've been thinking about whether I could write one about my father and I and our uh, evolving relationship. I, I was, I've been thinking to me, I've been thinking about how I, that should happen, so I'm glad to hear that you're thinking about that too. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm, I'm so my, glad we had an opportunity to, to talk about your dad. And uh, as I said to you, um, I'm, I'm sorry that in these last years um, we all have been too busy since Katrina and I haven't seen as much of him as I would have liked to have. Such is life, but thank you for this. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so now, folks, um, uh, earlier today um, I had lunch with um, former Mayor Moon Landrew, um, Pascal Calgaro, a.k.a. Pas, um, my husband, Bob Tannen, a.k.a. Tannen, and, um, and then – Moon and I stepped outside the restaurant because it was, as you know, noisy in there, and we sat out on a bench. And so you're going to hear some noise in the background occasionally, people saying, hey, I'll see you later, coming out of the restaurant or trucks on the street, whatever. But um, I think you'll find some of Moon's perspectives that he's about to share with us about Lois and about his time, um, the mayor's time, as uh, it, uh, when he was mayor in New Orleans and what New Orleans was all about um, during those days. So um, enjoy this interview, and um, we'll pick up with Jenga Mwendo immediately after that and talk about Back to Our Roots, a fantastic event coming up, and about her commitment to the um, health and, and um, the uh, food justice in the city. Okay, here we go with Moon Landrew.
here we go. Oh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I got the stretch signal from Jazz for just a minute there. We're getting it, we're getting it uh, loaded up. So uh, just give me a minute. So I'll, I'll just tell you um, for a second about, um, you know, again, Moon was somebody that was a big part of my early uh, life in New Orleans because uh, the first thing I did here after some political work was a report for WDSU, and as a reporter for WDSU. Um, I had to cover Moon Landrieu as mayor. And so Moon Landrieu, I think, was one of the best mayors I've ever known of in this country. But boy, as uh, somebody to cover, he was rough. <laughs> he could be just as rough as anybody. Um, and I told him today that one of my favorite stories that I always tell people about him, which is not fair because, you know, again, he's done so much, uh, so many other more important things. But um, one of my st- experiences with him was the day that we were covering the Superdome uh, and the progress there, and I had uh, run too much film. This was in the film days, and we ran out of film. I sent my reporter, my photographer, down to get more um, tape. He came back, and I, I was ready to roll. And I said, well, Mayor Landry, would you please repeat what you said about the Superdome, blah, blah, blah. And he said, no. If you ran out of film, that's your problem. You, you, you ran too much film before. He, and he just wouldn't. That was it. I was stuck. I had to make up. The rest of it, I had to, you know, choose the soundbite I wasn't really excited about. Um, but he was a great mayor, and um, here he is now. Okay. Best of times and worst of times. Well, it was the worst of times in the sense that City Hall was still totally segregated, everything above the broom and mop level. But it was the best of time because we had, the uh, federal government had passed the civil rights legislation, and, uh, and society was on the move to make changes. So in addition to that, the federal government was giving cities money in order to help us progress. So from that standpoint, it was the best of times and worst of times, and we tried to make the best of it. So it was also a time when you um, introduced many African-Americans to city government. You basically invited them in to work with you, to help you. Why did you do that, and and what was the effect of that on on your administration? Well, I was raised by in a rather poor neighborhood. I had a wonderful mother and father. Dad had only a third-grade education, and mother probably one or two years of high school. But then I went to Jesuit High School and Loyola University and fell under the influence of the Jesuits who were speaking to social justice, not all of them, but some of them. And uh, then after getting elected, uh, I went to the state legislature in 1960, and Jimmy Davis was the governor, and it was an horrendous period because the Board of Education, Supreme Court had passed the Board of Education uh, bill in, in uh in sixty in in sixty in sixty sixty four I'm thinking I'm losing my thought there uh, uh, fifty four nineteen fifty four and uh, so by the time that decision reached Louisiana to be implemented uh, we were called in the session by Jimmy Davis in 1959. And it's at that point where I was faced with what we're often at some time in our lives faced with the decision is who am I and what do I stand for? 
and uh, I refused to vote uh, for most of the bills that Jimmy Davis put forward, uh, which were all segregationist measures. And uh, it was a nervous period for me, but I just decided I couldn't be a human being as I was if I voted for that stuff. So I became known as a communist and a socialist and an end lover. Lost a lot of good friends uh, through that period, but it cemented my sense of racial fairness and racial justice. I'm not saying it was perfect, uh, but at least it gave me a direction which I hadn't had before in my life. And so you, as a result, introduced African Americans to city government. Well, I did. I was a, I came out of the out of the uh, state legislature in '65. Was elected city council, and. Uh, Uh, we just hit another little technical glitch. I don't usually do these uh, uh, recordings, but um, you know, this—he, uh, he, the mayor wasn't available during this time frame, so I, I went to do this interview uh, uh, previously. So um, hopefully, this is not um, a fatal uh, uh, flaw in the uh, in the tape because we did listen to it before and it sounded like it was okay. So we're we're just um, uh, getting our, our our bearings with it again. Um, I might invite Jenga into the uh, studio, Jenga, and um, uh, we're okay. It's ready. You're going to roll again. Stand by as we get ourselves. You know how this happens. I watch the cable shows every night, and it seems to happen almost every show. So I'm not embarrassed. I, I know we just got to get Often it. at some it's time in our up. lives faced with the decision is who am I and what do I stand for? And uh, I refused to vote uh, for most of the bills that Jimmy Davis put forward, uh, which were all segregationist measures. And uh, it was a nervous period for me, but I just decided I couldn't be a human being as I was if I voted for that stuff. So I became known as a communist and a socialist and an end lover, lost a lot of good friends, uh, through that period, but it cemented my sense of racial fairness and racial justice. I'm not saying it was perfect, uh, but at least it gave me a direction which I hadn't had before in my life. And so you, as a result, introduced African Americans to city government. Well, I did. I was a, I came out of the out of the uh, state legislature in '65. Was elected city council, and. Uh, First thing I did was really to take the Confederate flag out of the chamber, uh, much to the great distress of the White Citizens Council and lots of other people, and began to hire very modestly at the councilmanic level uh, blacks on the city council and on staff positions. And then when I got to be mayor, I had the power to make these appointments. And so we did, and it was not simple because I didn't know enough blacks to fill the high-level positions that we had. I had to rely on many other people. My friend Lola Eli was a great assistance to me in that regard. And so 
it was also difficult because many of the blacks or the blacks that we hired had no knowledge of the inner workings of City Hall, which was understandable. No, no member of their family had been there. They'd not been in the loop. And so... It's a learning uh, experience for all. I remember Don Hubbard coming to me and, and saying that uh, I kept rejecting some of the people that the various groups were submitting to me. And uh, he sat down, he called me Bawana, he had his angry face on, I like Don, he's a friend <laughs> today, and and he said, Bawana, your problem is you want super ends. And he didn't use the N-word, he used the whole word. I said, well, Don, you're absolutely right, it doesn't do us a damn bit of good to replace an incompetent white with an incompetent black, and I'm not going to do it. Now get me somebody who can do the job. Uh, and they came forward with the first one was Pete Sanchez who was, had been in the United States Army, was a major, and was a terrific guy. And I made sure that Pete, that Pete would have success. He had a uh, deputy uh, in that department who had supported Jimmy Fitzmaurice, and under the rules of the game, he was supposed to be, lose his job. And I called him in. I said, listen, I'm going to put a black man in the head of this department. Would you like to keep your job under those conditions? Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. said that I need you to stay at his side and make sure that he succeeds because for the first time, whites are going to have a black giving them orders, supervising them, and many are going to do their best to cut his legs out from under him. And I'm going to rely on you to protect him and to guide him until he longer needs you. And I talked to Pete, and I said, Pete, it's your department, and you can do whatever you please. I'm suggesting you keep this fella at your side until you feel comfortable. When you do, I'll get him another job. And Pete went on to be a very successful head of the Department of Property Management. Now, he was the first of many, but breaking that line was not easy. You just couldn't say it and have it done. You had to work your way through it and through an institution that was... Uh, rife with segregation. How, how did um, Lolas um, affect you and, and what you did, both as mayor and in general? Well, we just had a, a, a funeral for Lolas. It was a beautiful event. And everything I say about Lolas, I say as a friend, because we were very, very close friends. But he was a, he was a complicated man, <laughs> and he was a fighter. Lolas and I, to some extent, were born into the same economic environment. Different neighborhoods, but basically the same economic environment. He had good parents. I had good parents. Uh, and Lolas went to Loyola Law School a few years after I did. And uh, somehow I met Lolas, and uh, we developed a relationship. It wasn't intimate at the start. But later it became a very, very close relationship. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't have our differences. Lolas was a difficult person. He was small, argumentative, outspoken, and nothing was ever enough. It was push forward, go faster, move, do this. And he had an outspoken attitude about everything. Now, he defended a lot of people that in the sit-ins, in the sit-in, in the sit-in era, and even the Black Panthers. So we were often 
not on opposite sides, but approaching the same problem from a different aspect. I was, I had a responsibility to enforce the laws. He had, he had the job to, to defend those who were breaking it. So, listen, I've been married for 62 years, married to an absolutely marvelous woman. That doesn't mean that we don't have our differences, but we never let those differences affect our friendship and our love. And that's the way Lolas and I were. <laughs> I've seen myself ask Lolas to get out of the office because he was causing me so much difficulty. But we'd be back again. So it's uh, he. Lolas married a wonderful woman, and he's had two great kids. Uh, but to understand Lolas, you'd have to go back to the '60s and put yourself at his age in that in that group. It was a very tumultuous period. There are a number of things that were changing society that we kind of ignore. One, obviously, the civil rights legislation, and that was not just a boom, but it was over a period of time was happening. And then you had the interstate highway system that came in across the United States, and it began to change the nature of the local communities. People began to move to suburbia. You start having shopping centers. The little neighborhood grocery stores started going out of the business. The uh, shoe repair shops were going out of business uh, because we were now dealing in, in a more of an electronic age, and television was reaching not its height because it still hasn't gotten there, but at least uh, television was starting to boom as a medium. And those things had a great impact on uh, on how we lived. Uh, it changed the nature of neighborhoods. Uh, we lived in, not with a wall around us, but in a neighborhood that was fairly fairly defined, and there weren't that many automobiles. But when we started having all these automobiles come in, and people were now, instead of roaming two, two blocks this way and two blocks that way from your house, kids were getting in cars and going a mile away. So neighborhoods didn't break down, but they stopped being the solidified uh, know-your-neighbor type place that they used to be. And I'm, I'm curious to know, um, I mean, there were so many people who were involved in the civil rights movement at different levels. You, obviously, in the institutional world, and Lolas, as you said, as the, as the fighter on the outside, but how would you uh, sum up Lolas's character and his influence on you? Well, Lolas, first of all, was very intelligent, and he was very widely read. Uh, part of the problem dealing with Lolas is that he was so widely read about worldwide uh, movements, uh, big things, that when you got down to the specifics, uh, he oftentimes didn't understand the, the complications of getting it done. But uh, he helped me select people for City Hall. As a matter of fact, after we won, and there's a story about how that happened, uh, Lolas was about to support Billy Gus, who was a good guy, and he was running for mayor too. And I said, Lolas, I'll tell you what, why don't you come with me? Let's go to your neighborhood and go to mine and show you how I grew up and how you grew up. And then let's go past Billy Gus's home, which was a beautiful home in the, in the uptown New Orleans. 
And after we did that, I said, now, Lolas, which of us do you think understands the problem better that you're facing and that we're facing? And I think I convinced him at that point to support me for mayor. And, of course, there were a lot of different groups. I'm not saying Lolas made the entire difference, but it was, it was certainly helpful for me. And then when I got to be mayor, I relied on Lolas oftentimes to run people past him. I didn't know everybody. I needed a background check, but we didn't have the kind of thing that they do at the federal level. So Lolas had a pretty good insight into certain people who had been in other positions and was very free and open in his evaluation of them. So that helped me greatly. And I offered Lolas a job. I wanted, you know, in those days, you won as a politician and you cleared out City Hall and you brought your own people in. Now, you couldn't touch the civil service people, which is another story, but you had quite a few appointments, and I wanted Lolas to come with me, and he wouldn't do it. I said, well, Lolas, we won. He said, well, I don't want to be compromised, because he wanted to be free to speak his word whenever he spoke, as if working at City Hall as a city attorney or some other job under me would limit his right to say what he wanted to say when he wanted to say it. So I can't say enough for Lolas. He was just wonderful. We might have lost just that little bit because of that jet above us, so if you would just tie that up again. Well, I'd ask Lolas to come to work at City Hall with me, and he wouldn't do it. And I said, well, why? He said he didn't want to be compromised. I said, well, Lolas, that's not how the system works. We won the election, and, you know, in those days, the City Hall got, after the executive vote, got cleared out. I kept some people, but mostly got cleared out. But he said he didn't want to be compromised because he wanted to be able to speak his mind whenever he wanted to speak it. So I ended up hiring his brother, who worked in the mayor's office. So Lolas was a piece of work. He did a great deal of work as a lawyer, defending civil rights people, and he was very helpful to me in more ways than you can imagine. When I kind of think back on it, and I do so in a tearful way because of his death, but he was enormously important to me, just somebody to talk to and to understand things that I didn't understand as a white guy. So this has been so interesting because I wish we could all be students of history and know about the antecedents to the world we deal with today. So even I, covering this city for so many years, didn't know many of the things you just shared with me. I look forward to having another conversation with you very soon. We'll continue maybe a little bit of a kind of looking back, looking forward. On my show, I'd love to have you on again. All right, Jean. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Moon. So it just makes me feel I got shivers, really, talking to the people that we've been talking to. And now we're going to talk to one of the younger leaders in our city who I fully expect to fill some big shoes going forward. She probably has big feet because she's not exactly short. She's a tall girl. Jenga Mwanda, I have always been so impressed with your basic approach to your work. Again, not unlike 
uh, what we've been hearing about um, the two Lolises, um, a level of um, sincere um, commitment to the things that you think are important. Uh, worked with you, of course, in, in the um, effort to uh, to try to see the right thing done with the Holy Cross site, which. Mm-hmm. Let's stay tuned. That's not over. Not over yet. Right? <laughs> not over. It ain't over until the skinny girl sings. <laughs> and um, I um, am impressed, you know, with, with your commitment now to the Backyard Gardeners Network. And, of course, you have this incredible event coming up. I mean, you know, we all have to go to the galas of our friends that we support. But this one is so appealing in the entertainment um, that you're offering, uh, it's irresistible. And the Windsor Court, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. that's pretty elegant digs yeah. for a, for a gala. It's hard to get those fancy hotels to help you out with these things. So I'm, I'm impressed with that. April 17th, uh, coming right up, um, 6 to 8 p.m., patron party at 5.30. And the, the tickets are not, are, are not the sky high tickets that many of the galas now uh, claim in the city fifty dollars right. for the uh, regular tickets and one hundred and twenty five for the patron party. So I just wanted to get that in, so we made sure we got that out there, Thank and we'll you. come back to it. But tell me about the Backyard Gardeners Network and, and what you're trying to do with that. So, first of all, thank you very much, Jean, for having me on the sure. show. It's really an honor to to be on the same show <laughs> when we're talking about uh, Lois, Lois, Eli, and, uh, you know, having Moon Landry on the show. So for me to follow them, it's, um, it is, it, you know, it's big shoes. I'm not sure that I'm, <laughs> you know, that I can feel that, but. You will. Um, yeah. So Backyard Gardeners Network is a nonprofit organization based in the Lower Nine, um, for those who are, uh, who, for those who just want to get online and actually purchase tickets now, I just want to plug that website address really quickly: www.bgnola-roots.eventbrite.com. That's the best way to purchase tickets um, to the fundraiser. Let's the do that again: bgnola-roots.eventbrite.com. Okay. Yes. Um, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Information is also on our website as well. And you can give us a call, too, at 504-875-2948. That's 504-875-2948. And we're raising funds to support the free community programming that we do in the Lower Ninth Ward. Um, as I mentioned before, we're a nonprofit organization that essentially uses the cultural traditions of growing food that are really strong all over New Orleans, but I'm from the Lower Nine and I live in the Lower Nine, so specifically in the Lower Nine, to use that as a community building tool. And so our programming centers around food and gardening. We have uh, three main programs that we're doing this spring, um, and we'd like to continue them and expand them. One of them is a Food is Medicine workshop series, which is health and uh, nutrition cooking classes for uh, adults and seniors in our community. People who have participated in these programs have been able to reduce the amount of medication that they're on. Uh, They've been getting, They've been getting good words from their doctors, saying that, telling them that they're on the right path uh, to getting healthier. Um, and it's even good for people who want to prevent diet-related health problems like diabetes, heart disease, uh, certain types of cancers. Um, we really need to 
make sure that we're being very conscious and intentional about what we put into our body, enjoying food always, of course, but also, you know, keeping in mind that food is our primary source of healing. So we got food as medicine. We also have a kids club that we do uh, weekly on Saturdays. Uh, the spring season just started last Saturday. It's gardening, cooking, and art activities for kids in our neighborhood. So um, especially with, as you know, Jean, of the closing of uh, All Souls Church and Community Center, we really lost, uh, you know, another activity or another thing for, uh, you know, for youth, for young people to be involved in. And so I think um, programs like Kids Club are even are, are that much more important to um, bring kids together in a safe space, uh, in a space where they're going to be learning something, um, in a space that's going to, uh, you know, promote health and, uh, and really uh, affirm who they are as young black children as well. And then finally, we have our youth internship program that sort of hits that the teenage. You know, we, we have something for each age group. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 14 to 19-year-olds uh, are hired uh, every season to work with us. So this is actually a paid youth internship program for them. Uh, kids in that, uh, that age range um, are often looking for work and cannot find it um, because either they're too young or they're too inexperienced. Um, so we offer this paid youth internship program. They work with us not only in the gardens, doing things like garden maintenance and learning how to grow food, uh, but they also help with the workshops and events that I talked about. Um, specifically with our kids club, we actually train them so on how gonna, to work with children. Yeah, I was going to say they're learning not just about the, the content of your programming, the food, but they're also learning literally how to organize. Exactly. Cause, and, they, and, and I'm glad you said that, too, because community outreach is an aspect of it, too. Uh, going out and talking to people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, around the garden, in the neighborhood, going door to door. Uh, it helps them to um, to improve their communication skills, um, to, you know, understand what it means to bring people together. You know, as a result of the last community outreach they did, we had uh, 10, 10, yes, 10 total uh, kids come to, to Kids Club directly as a result of the community outreach they did. So those kids actually got to plant a garden they got to learn that food comes from actually comes from the ground, not from the store. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. it sounds you know funny, but it's a connection no, that is I, often missed. You it, know, yeah. If I, I when I grew up, my mother's family all lived in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I, I, I grew up in the city. They used to ask me for my passport when I came from yeah. New York to <laughs> New Jersey. But there were vegetable gardens. Yeah. And, and um, so garden quite state, frankly, yeah. I was not in love with having to go pick beans because <laughs> they used to have pretty big gardens yeah. and it would be pretty hot out there. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, no. Knowing that how where we get our food from is yeah. so important. But where where did your commitment to this idea of health and and food as a social justice issue come from? So I th for me, it's uh, the way that I was raised, and so the community that I was raised in. What you know, we were talking before about a civil rights pioneer, or you know, someone who was uh, you know, a Lois Eli as a civil rights lawyer. Um, my parents were very involved in the uh, what came out of the civil rights movement. What I see is what came out of the civil rights movement being the Black Liberation Movement um, in New Orleans, and uh, they were um, they were revolutionary in their thought and in, in their community. So I was raised in a community, an African-centered community, where um, we were very health conscious because we, um, you know, my parents and their peers sort of looked at 
the cultural, some of the cultural habits that we had picked up um, or that were passed down from uh, many of the negative parts of our history, from slavery, from Jim Crow, from us being denied so many things. And one of them was the way that we eat, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, you know, enslaved people were not able to eat the best foods. So we had to make do with what mm. we had, right? Mm-hmm. So um, my, you know, my parents decided to make changes in our lives, and they did a lot of reading and research along with, uh, you know, their sisters and brothers and, you know, my, who became other parents to me, you know, what, and decided where, where that. Where did you grow up exactly? I grew up between the Lower Nine and New Orleans East. Okay. So we kind of went back and forth uh-huh. okay. um, between. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I graduated high school, we were in the lower nine at that time. And then, you know, I, I left after high school. And, and what but, I... Um, it, you know, it, it's just a commitment. It's it's part of a larger, so you know, kind of, uh, for me, it was part of a larger, or for my family, part of larger consciousness about who we are and defining ourselves, um, not just accepting sort of what was given to us, yeah. but defining who we are that's why i have an african name for instance you know my parents changed their names because they wanted to define who they were as opposed to taking the name uh that was given to them probably by a slave Slave master yeah Mm -hmm. right so um but for food you know for what we do at at the garden that it sort of comes out of that but it's not heavy (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that you know Mm -hmm. it's this it's is joyful. Of, it's joyful. I'll bet it's joyful. It's fun. Working out. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's us getting together. It's love. You know, what mm. I teach, you know, so part of our youth internship program is actually training uh, our teenagers. Um, one, I, I mentioned to work with the kids and to help with our workshops, um, but they also receive other trainings like about food justice. They learn about um, land loss and the importance of owning land. Uh, in the black community, the lo- the amount of land that has been lost, uh, especially among black farmers over the past century, and what that means, you know, for us. So it's 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 sort of a deeper, you know, it, it's fun. It's 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 a family atmosphere. It's a lot of love, and also they're getting so much rich education that I think reinforces who they are. And we really want to send these teenagers out into the world as confident and competent young people well, self-esteem. wherever they go. Oh, self-esteem is such a core issue for um, everybody and the, the paths they choose in life. And I, I think that the lower self-esteem people have, that's that's when they um, ha- wind up hanging right. out in the, in the wrong... It makes it easier to make yeah. bad decisions. Yeah. So, so. Um, uh, but the notion of food justice, I have to be honest with you, that's a... That's a phrase that I hadn't thought a lot about. Mm-hmm. And um, yet at the same time, I'm well aware of the history of the Lower Ninth Ward, mm-hmm. for one, having been at the beginning of this, the, not uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, a farming community, yeah. primarily. Mm-hmm. And, and even today, the, the properties tend to have larger lots mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. people do garden. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the neighborhood who still do garden. There's wild chickens running around the neighborhood still. Um yeah, I mean we the it's when the lower nine was cut off from the rest of the city by the industrial canal. I think that really uh you know affected the development of uh the neighborhood and it became 
um, uh, neighborhood where property value was lower, um, which and it also became uh, a neighborhood that was easier to access because of price and uh, you know just because of the uh, because of uh, segregation and Jim Jim Crow, it became an area where black people could live at least on the between you know on the other side of St. Claude. Mm -hmm. um, so it became a place of high rates of black home ownership. Mm -hmm. It was a place where black families could really, which is something that I think came as down a, a surprise to a lot of people um, uh, after Katrina, learning that history. Because I mm -hmm. think initially the idea was that it was a neighborhood of more of rental, and not only was it of of high a percentage of of home ownership, but huge is extended families absolutely that and all that, live together there and, right and, and that's and when how, people and ran into a lot of problems and, and, with that as well but but how's that how's that going now are, are are we getting folks back more so or is it still a struggle for people to come back um i think that at this point i mean it's over a decade at this point since uh katrina so um you know i i, I believe that for the most part Everyone who who wants to come back and who is able to come back has has done that, yeah. and yeah, people who want to move into the you know who want to move back to the lower nine, um, are maybe are not doing so in ways it's new people, um, or younger people actually you know because I mean it's ten mm -hmm. years it's a long time for someone to grow up and become an adult and decide where they want to live mm -hmm. next um, so. What's happening now, I, I, what was tragic, I think, after uh, Katrina was that I think that we saw a massive amount of land loss again. Um, a lot You mentioned families living together for generations and generations. Many families didn't do proper secession. Yeah. yeah. With their, you know, so it was very difficult to, to make claim on land. Uh, as a result of that, I think land was lost uh, because of that, uh, because um, people owned their homes outright mm -hmm. as well and didn't have insurance um, because they couldn't afford to rebuild because the road home program only, as we know, only gave you uh, money based on the value of your house as opposed to the cost of construction, yeah, right? Right. right. Um, so there was just a, lo a lot of loss, a lot of very tragic loss. Uh, in regards to that, and I think that's why a lot of people in the neighborhood are angry now about the amount of um, rentals that are, are, are you know, pro houses that are being built now for rental, um, which, you know, which may one day surpass the amount of the percentage of home ownership that we have, uh, you know, in the neighborhood. But, I mean, the population is slowly growing, um, and I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I I'm I'm knocked out by this. I mean, I, I've always loved the concept of gardening. I buy gardening books. I'm probably the worst gardener you've ever known. <laughs> I'm just not good at it. I, I like to say that I can I can water and weed, but I can't plant and prune. That's most of the work, though. Gee, <laughs> watering and watering weeding. and weeding is nothing. <laughs> no, planting and and pruning. Pruning is yeah. the thing that I'm terrible at and I just everything I prune I destroy so mm. I'm in deep admiration of people who do this well and I and of, of 
teaching other people to do it. So thank you. I, I hope that your event coming up is a great success. Tank and the Bangas, my absolute most favorite band in the city right now. I had them on my show not too long ago, and I just re-listened to the show, and I just loved every second of it. The Israel Trio, Sunni. Sunny Patterson. Sunny Patterson. Sunny Patterson is going to be there. This is going to be one hot night. April 17th. Is that Thursday? No, that's actually a Monday. That's the Monday mm. after Easter Sunday. Ah, Monday yeah. after Easter Sunday. I'm sorry. I should have thought of that. Um, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Windsor Court Hotel. Very she-she, but, um, and a, but a really fun, great crowd and a great cause, Backyard Gardeners Network. Uh, Jenga Mwendo, I would support anything you will do, and I am looking forward to this event. So I hope to see you all there. BGNNOLA-roots.eventbrite.com, you know, or just remember BGN NOLA. That'll get you there. Yeah, because that's where we are on Instagram okay. and Twitter. People can also call us at 504-875-2948. That's 504-875-2948. So we talked with the old leaders today and a younger leader and um, uh, look forward to running into you out, out on the streets in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. We will see you next week. We had a little overtime here. Thank you so much, Jazz. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.